It's good to be together uh, and worship God together and hear the word together. And uh, shout out to all the pod listeners. Uh, hi, pod listeners. We love you. You're, you're part of us. Uh, we're glad to have you on board as well. Had a few people here uh, in the first service uh, who are pod listeners. Uh, one guy who's from Turkey. Uh, he made a little commute. He's a missionary and um, uh, he gets fed by us over there. So it's just cool to find out all the different uh, places that this message goes out to. Wonderful. So we are doing this series here on um, kind of looking for our tribe and tradition, or naming it, I guess, is a better way of putting it. Um, the people of God in the Bible are always embedded in history, and they bear witness to what God's doing in the present, in part by uh, testifying to what God's done in the past. Uh, people of God are, are plugged into a tradition that they receive from and pass on. But Woodland Hills has never really done that. We've just been kind of out there on our own, doing our own little thing. And uh, so leadership, it began to sense about two years ago that that is not right. We need to be, in a meaningful way, uh, plugged in with a larger group, a tribe, a tradition. And as we've looked around at um, the, uh, looking at taking consideration of the atypical distinctive beliefs that we have, we, we share the historic Orthodox faith with the Church Universal, but there's some rather atypical uh, convictions that we have. And so we're looking for the tribe and the tradition that, that embody those rather atypical convictions. And it turns out it's the Anabaptists. We didn't see this coming. We didn't plan on this. It wasn't on a radar screen. Uh, six, seven years ago, most of us in leadership hardly even knew who the Anabaptists were. And uh, now it turns out that we are them. And uh, this isn't about us changing anything. It's just about us finding the family that, that shares our distinct convictions. Uh, it's the Anabaptists. So to understand the Anabaptists, we've been saying you have to really see them as a reaction to what has been for 1,500 years, or 1,000 years, um, no, 1,500 years, the face, it was 1,000 years when they started in the, in the 15th century, now it's, never mind, uh, you have to understand them, I get mixed up whenever I get into math, against the religion of Christendom, which has been the dominant face of Christianity for these last 1,500 years, 1,000 years when they started uh, the Anabaptist movement in the 15th century. All right. So this, this religion of Christendom is that religion that arose out of uh, this alleged conversion of Constantine based on an, an alleged vision he got of a Jesus as a warrior telling him to go fight in, the, in Jesus' name. And he thought this was a vision from God because he ended up winning. And a lot of the church theologians at the time, Augustine, Eusebius, they thought it was of God. But the Anabaptists thought it was of the devil, and I tend to agree with them. Um, and out of, as a result of this alleged conversion, Constantine gave all his power to the church and, and uh, um, kind of made their bishops his advisors and whatnot. And out of this rose this religion of Christendom. This is the church militant and triumphant, the church that thought it was going to conquer the world in, in Jesus' name. Um, at the heart of this religion of Christendom is this conviction, and it is as old as fallen humankind is, the conviction that you win by, uh, by squashing your opponents, or at least by controlling your opponents. And now that conviction, which had been previously seen as being anti-Christ, uh, the, the thing that Christianity is against, Jesus shows us a very different way, but now it becomes Christianized. So we're going to triumph in Jesus' name. And there have been dissenters from the start who said, that is not the kingdom. This triumphalism. That's not the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. That doesn't look at all like Jesus. It doesn't look like the cross. And 
uniformly throughout church history, these dissenters have been squashed because that's what the religion of Christendom does. You, you, you win by crushing your opponents. Um, the Anabaptists in the 16th century, this movement that started then, it's now has a lot of different faces, the Mennonites, the Brethren of Christ, and a number of different organizations. But um, they were the first group of dissenters that survived to pass on a tradition. Uh, and it's with us to this day. Um, actually, the term I learned this week, the term Anabaptism, in the Greek it's Anabaptisma, it goes back to the 5th century. I thought that these guys in the 16th century coined the term, but this phrase, it means uh, another baptism. Uh, it, it actually goes back to the 5th century when the church began to identify these dissenters as folks who baptized adults and they put them to death for that reason. So in the 16th century, when the opponents of the Anabaptists called them Anabaptists, they were themselves just uh, passing on a, a, a term that was coined, had been in use for a thousand years. Uh, the Anabaptists, however, were the first ones to survive and therefore became the, the tag, their tag, their title. Uh, those who baptize again, though in their view, they're not baptizing again, they're baptizing for the first time. So this turns out to be our tribe, the Anabaptists. And... Um, We've looked at, uh, we're looking at the distinctives of the Anabaptists that turn out to be the distinctives of Woodland Hills Church. We're encouraging folks to read this marvelous book by Stuart Murray uh, called The Naked Anabaptist. And um, it really identifies the essentials of the Anabaptist movement. But as you read it, you'll find out that it, if you've been there for any length of time, you'll recognize Woodland Hills all over it because they happen to be our distinctives as well. So the first distinctive is that the Anabaptists believe that uh, the kingdom is not, first and foremost, about just believing in Jesus for salvation. It's rather having a relationship with Jesus that is salvation, and that transforms you and empowers you to live like Jesus. All right? So it's about, it's about a life. Jesus prays in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom, they've sent, uh, whom you've sent. And uh, so it's about not just believing, but knowing, personally having a relationship with Jesus that results in a transformed life. And that aspires to look like Jesus. And then the second distinctive we talked about last week. Uh, and that's that the Anabaptists saw that the Bible is not a flat book like a cookbook. Where it doesn't matter where a passage is. Rather, it's a story. And it's a story with a very, very surprising twist in the last chapter. Which is the last days that we're still in. That twist is Jesus Christ. And so they saw that you need to read the whole Bible through the lens of Jesus. If you weren't here for that message last week, I encourage you to get it because it's, if this is your spiritual body, I encourage you to get it because this is so foundational to the way we approach Scripture, to the way we approach everything. Uh, it's to be read through a Christocentric, crucocentric, cross-centered lens. The Anabaptists got that. The third thing then that we're going to look at today is the church, the nature of the church. Because the Anabaptists didn't fuse together the church and the state the way Christendom does. Because they didn't have a nationalistic kind of Christianity the way the religion of Christendom does, because of that, they had a very different conception of church. They understood that the church is us. We are the church. And so we're entitling this message, We the Church. We the Church. A uh, little echo of we the people. Well, this is we the church. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I am a preacher who uh, rightly divides the word. Okay. Hopefully I can preach better than I can uh, tell jokes. All right. 1 Corinthians 3. And we'll start with verse 16. Listen to this. This is great. 
Don't you know that you yourselves, it's plural here, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. That's what a temple is for. It's, it's uh, where God dwells. So God dwells in our midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. You are sacred because you are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. We, the church. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for the presence I feel here this morning, the joy and the freedom I feel here this morning. I pray, God, that you just infuse my words uh, coming out of my mouth with your authority to do what my words can never do, and that is to build your kingdom and to tear down strongholds. I pray, God, especially that you use these words to uh, install in us that identity as your temple and to see the profound beauty of that and the, the joy and the opportunity that comes with that and the, the significance and the responsibility that comes with that. We are your house. We are your co-partners. Your, your, we are heirs of the kingdom. Uh, God, we are your hands and feet by which you bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. God, set in us here this morning in this auditorium, and also, God, all those who are listening through podcasts or watching on television, uh, God, they have a fire about this, a fire that burns in our heart to be your temple, to, to be your cathedral that puts on display your beauty, that attracts into your kingdom others. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's temple people said, amen, amen. amen. Oh, yes! We're going to have questions uh, here at the end of the message. Uh, so if you, as, as I'm going through this, if you get questions, uh, text them to that number, 651-321-3030. All right? Um, and uh, tell you what, if I forget, because I, I said it last night, I for, totally forgot that uh, we're having questions. So at, let's say, ele- uh, let's see, 12.05, will you, if, if, I get, if I'm still yapping away at 12.05, just holler out, Greg, don't forget questions. And then I will, within one minute, wrap it up. All right? If I, if I forget. All right. So we're talking about the church. Here's the thing. I, I, I want to first talk about what is the church, and then I want to talk about um, uh, what's the purpose of the church. And I'll be contrasting the religion of Christendom model with, with the Anabaptist model. Uh, so first, what is the church? I've had some people here, especially if you've come from a Catholic tradition, uh, can understand this, um, maybe share this kind of a sentiment, but I've always had a, a, a kind of a strange relationship with cathedrals. I'm conflicted. I, on the one, I love them and I hate them. Uh, first of all, I'll talk about how I love them. There, there's something about cathedrals that I, I when I sit in them, I, I, there's something that happens inside of me. Part of it is probably that when I was a little kid, they, they sent me away to this Catholic school, hoping that the nuns could, uh, you know, beat the perdition out of me uh, and, and, and reform me because I was just a wacko kid. So uh, it didn't work, obviously, but, but they tried. And, and every morning I had to go to Mass, every morning. And it was said in Latin. And if you've got ADHD and you're listening to a Mass in Latin, it's, that's hell. Uh, so I identified church with hell. But um, there's a, a, a nostalgic thing or something that happens inside of me when I'm in, inside cathedrals. 
And, you know, the cathedrals were, were built to put on display the glory of God and the power of God and the might of God and to point to the transcendence of God. And I can't say that I feel closer to God when I'm in these cathedrals, but there's something, there's, a, there's an experience there that I, I like. It's a, uh, I don't know, it's almost a mystical kind of a thing. Wherever I go, I like to look at, if I go on vacation or uh, take ministry trips, I try to carve out time to go to cathedrals, especially older cathedrals. The older, the better. Uh, it's like stepping back in time or something. Uh, on vacation, you go to, you know, I go down to Mexico sometimes, and I like to find these old cathedrals and just, you know, take it in and look at the stained glass windows. And I don't know, there's, there's a beauty there. Um, when I go on ministry trips, I'll try to, if possible, get aside uh, some time so I visit these old cathedrals, especially in Europe, man, when you get at these buildings that go back to the 12th century. It's just incredible, uh, the experience. Uh, Shelly and I were in Vienna uh, a couple of years ago, and Vienna's got some incredible cathedrals. This is St. Stephen's. Look at that. See, it's just, it, it's, it's, it points upward to the transcendence of God, and it's meant to convey power and might and, and glory. And then the inside, it has the same kind of thing. The architecture is all designed to point to the transcendent, to capture the, the, the mystical transcendence of God. And, and something like that happens with me. I don't know. It just, it just hits me in a profound way. Um, some of these uh, cathedrals, uh, they, 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 they still uh, embody some of the fusion of the church and state that happened with Constantine. You know, Constantine had this idea that, that uh, we need to build temples for the gods, and, and they still embody that. Like, I, I, in this, this uh, temple in Vienna, temple, this cathedral in Vienna, um, on one side of this uh, hall, they had this a cross that was there, and with the tortured Jesus on it, this mangled Jesus, and right across the hall, three feet away, on the other side of this hall, was this uh, gladiator, or not gladiator, uh, uh, a, a crusader. And they don't notice the, the, the contradiction there. See, this is the fusion of the church and state. You find this a lot in these cathedrals. This warrior next to Jesus, what's wrong with this picture? You know? uh, they don't notice the contradiction. But see, what happened? That's a part of the cathedrals I don't like. I, I love the fact that it does something in me. There's this kind of mystical sort of thing that happens. There's the beauty of the architecture I, I, I can just appreciate and love. But on the other hand, I see that this is not at all. I get grieved by these cathedrals because this is not what the New Testament church was supposed to be. Um, in the New Testament, the term is ecclesia. And the, the word means called out ones. It's a people group. The, the church are the people who are called out from the world, like Israel was called out of Egypt. The church is the body of those who have surrendered their lives to Christ and therefore have the life of Christ pulsating in them, and therefore are growing in the direction of Christ's likeness. That's the church. It's the people. And for the first three centuries of the church, that's how people thought about the church. They didn't have special religious buildings they met in. They met in each other's houses. But then Constantine gets this vision and, and uh, alleged conversion. And I can't judge his heart. Maybe he was converted, but he still thought like a pagan and acted like a pagan. And so... He takes his pagan thinking and begins to reframe Christianity on that basis. In the pagan religion of the time, he always built temples to the gods. He was a worshiper of the sun god, and he had erected all over Rome these, these magnificent temples for the sun god. These are the homes of God, the house of God. And you, you show forth the glory of the god that you worship by having a glorious building. 
That's how you court the God's favor, so that the gods will help you win in battle, and they will bless your country or whatever. You want to honor them by making these, these magnificent temples. Well, then when Constantine uh, is converted, or allegedly was converted, he starts to do this to Jesus, for, for the God of the Christians. And so now we have all over the place these magnificent, beautiful buildings being erected to the Christian God, and that's where the Christians begin to meet. And now, for the first time in history, the church begins to be identified with a building. And the glory of God begins to be associated with the glory of the building. You see, it was, this is where God lives, the temple of, 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 of God. And that, that grieves me that that is still with us to this day. People identify the church as a building. This has been a staple of Christendom, the religion of Christendom. Uh, they want to show forth the, the, the triumph. This is a church militant triumphant, right? So they want to show forth the triumph of their God by these, these, these triumphalistic buildings and show the strength and the glory and the transcendence of God by these glorious buildings. And as I said, you often have in these edifices uh, symbols that show that, that this is the result of a nationalized religion, the fusion of church and state, uh, the taking the, the Jesus was crucified and transforming him into a warrior God. The reformers come along and they tweak some of the theology around that and they modify some things and they distance the glory of God from the building a little bit. But they still, everybody still, identified the building with church. The Anglicans, the Calvinists, Lutherans, Catholics, everybody identifies the building as church. In fact, to this day, about 98.74% of all the people out there still identify a building as church. Maybe this morning you even said, hey, honey, it's time to go to church. Come on, kids, you got to go to church. We still think of church as a place where you go. Now, obviously, here at Woodland Hills Church, we don't identify the glory of God with the glory of this building. <laughs> that would be a pretty pathetic God. But uh, um, it's habitual. We still think of the church in terms of a building. The Anabaptists come along, and, and they say, this is not where it's at. This has got it all wrong. They see that in the New Testament, the church is not... A building at all. It's the called out ones. The church is a people. The Anabaptists say, you're right, that God does want a temple. That's right. You're right, that God does want to dwell in the temple. You're right, that that temple is supposed to glorify God. You're right, God does want a magnificent cathedral. But you need to understand, the Anabaptists said, that that cathedral is the people. The cathedral that God wants to dwell in are the people who have surrendered to him. And he does want a, a beautiful, beautiful temple that puts on display his character. But you need to understand, the Anabaptist said, that the criteria for what is beautiful isn't this, this, this macho triumphalistic thing. The criteria is the cross, because that's the character of God. This, this uh, love that Jesus displayed even towards his enemies as he prays for them, even as they're crucifying him, that is the beauty of God. And so the Anabaptist said, that we are the temple of God to the, the degree that we put on display that character of God, the cross character of God. Uh, we're the, the temple to the extent that we love like Jesus loves and we forgive like Jesus forgives. We're the temple to the degree that we serve people the way Jesus serves people and that we're humble the way Jesus was humble and that we care for the sick the way Jesus cared for the sick. We are the temple to the degree that we turn the other cheek like Jesus turned the other cheek. And that we love our enemies like Jesus loved uh, enemies. 
And then we reach out to the outsiders and the marginalized the way Jesus reached out to the outsiders and the marginalized. And so the Anabaptist said that Christendom religion has just got it wrong when you put on a building the job of putting on display the glory of God. We are to be putting on display the glory of God. We're to be manifesting his beauty. We're to be declaring his wonders. We're to be showing what it looks like to be in a relationship with God and to be the temple of God. We're to show what it looks like for God to live inside of us. Because when God lives inside of a people group, they begin to look like God. They begin to love like God and serve like God. And so the Anabaptist said, we want to be the temple by committing ourselves to loving folks the way Jesus loved folks and serving folks the way Jesus served folks. And that is a cathedral, folks, in the eyes of God. Uh, you get a people group who love like Jesus loves and serves like Jesus serves. And in the eyes of God, that's, that's a Sistine Chapel. That's St. That's Stephen's on steroids. That's, that's what a beautiful cathedral really looks like. Amen. Here is a picture of a beautiful church. His name is Derek Wilhelms. And this is an individual example of it. Uh, but uh, you'll see what I'm talking about here. Uh, Derek Wilms was a guy who was, uh, he was an Anabaptist preacher and he got arrested like so many did and, uh, and this is in the Netherlands now and, and uh, the prisons at this time were so overrun with Anabaptists waiting to get executed they had no more space so they would take some of these lower feudal lords and kick them out of their castles and turn their castles into prisons and so Derek Wilms was thrown into one of these castles put in the tower of one of these castles waiting for ex- to be executed Somehow he got his hands on some rags, I don't know how, but he, he got a bunch of rags and he tied them together and got a little rope, threw it out the window of that tower and climbs down to make his getaway. As he's running away, a guard notices him and begins to chase him. And they run for a mile or two when, when Derek comes to this uh, lake uh, and, he, and he, he crosses it. Now this is in the spring, it's beginning to thaw and so that ice is rather thin. But Derek had a slight build and could make it across okay. But the, his pursuer was a little heavier, I guess, and, and uh, uh, was, had some armor on. And, and so he breaks through the ice. The ice doesn't hold him up. And so he's drowning. He calls out for help. Save me. And Derek hears the call, turns around, crawls back on that thin ice, risking his own life, and saves this guard, pulls him to safety. And this guard who was a jerk of unsurpassable worth, rearrests Derek, arrests him again, takes him, sort of arrests him again, takes him back to the castle, and three, four days later, Derek is executed. But see, that puts on display, that is a cathedral, folks, that is a Sistine Chapel, that is a magnificent display of the beauty of God, because that's the kind of thing that Jesus did. That made, by the world's criteria, that looks stupid and foolish and dumb. But see... Uh, God's chosen the foolish, of this, foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the strong. And so this is what a cathedral looks like. The Anabaptists saw this. This is what the, the church of God looks like. You lay down your life for your enemies. You serve those who, uh, and wash the feet of those even who are going to betray you. Uh, and and that, that puts on display the character of God. The Anabaptists saw that we are to be the, 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 the temple of God by living like, loving like, serving like Jesus. And folks, this is, this is our tribe. This is our tribe because this is what we aspire to be. When I, when I look at the religion of, of Christendom, um, you know, God uses everybody. Uh, he'll work through anyone. So there, there, you, there are some good things you see throughout history in the religion of Christendom. 
And I want to say that, and, and yes, that was good. But when I look at the religion of Christendom throughout history, I can't say that I consistently see the character of God as defined by the cross. Look at the Crusades, the Inquisition, not so much. And so I can't say that that's our heartbeat. That, I can't say that that's, that's our tribe, uh, that I, and the tradition I want to affiliate. That's rather something I need to, I feel like I always got to explain to people. I don't want to point them to that, say, Here, here's what you're signing up for if you join the kingdom. No, that's not the tribe and tradition I want to be receiving and passing on. But when I look at the Anabaptists, people like, like Derek Wilhelms, um, I, I, I see a beauty there, a character there that looks like Jesus. It, it resembles the cross. And, and I can say that this, is how, this is how I bear witness to God throughout history. This is a people who got it and who embodied it and who lived it out. And uh, uh, I can hold up these folks as, as heroes that I want to aspire to be like. This is our tribe and our tradition. Uh, this is what we want to aspire to, 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 to move towards. We here in uh, speaking out to just Woodland Hills Church, we are in America, and so we're not persecuted like our Anabaptist forefathers. But we are still to carry on this tradition. This is the New Testament tradition. And so we need to live in the question, as I mentioned last week, live in the question, who are the enemies that we're to be praying for? Who are the enemies that we're to be serving? Who are the enemies that we're to be loving? What is the evil that we're to be returning good with? Um, I said last week, every kingdom person ought to have two people, at least, that they're always praying for. One is somebody who doesn't know Christ, or you think he doesn't know Christ, and you want to love them and pray them and win them into the kingdom, because we're all missionaries, right? And secondly, we ought to all have on our hearts and minds an enemy that we're praying for. It's just a, a foundational kingdom discipline. Uh, it will form you in, 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 in beautiful ways if you are disciplined about praying for an enemy. Who doesn't like you? Who don't you get along with? Who, do you, who rubs you wrong? And if you're just that kind of person that gets along with everybody, well, then pray for national enemies. There's somebody on the planet who doesn't like you. Pray for them, right? Um, and, and, and that's how we carry on the tradition. We've got to live in that question. And we've got to live in the question, who do we serve? How can we sacrifice uh, for others? We always say here that the kingdom begins when we begin to bleed, by that I mean when we start to sacrifice, uh, feel the pinch of our own resources for the sake of others. That's the kingdom. And that's what we're called to embody. And, and we, we are the temple of God and put on display the glory of God to the degree that we do that. Uh, always living in the question, who can we serve? Who can we sacrifice for? This is why, folks, by the way, even though you can see in the back of the bulletin that we have our own financial issues, we do. But we consistently bring before you ministries that we ask you to give towards, to sacrifice towards. Ministries that serve the poor and help the homeless and feed the hungry. Because that is what the kingdom is about. And I don't care how poor we get, we're going to keep on doing that. Because if we stop doing that, we might as well close up shop. That is what the kingdom is, is about. Uh, that's why we, we have this ministry like Project Homes, where we are this month turning our church into a, a homeless shelter in the, in the evenings. And I want to echo what Vanessa said and uh, say, I, I am just tickled pink at the way you folks have been responding. Uh, the last couple of years, I've just noticed this. It's, uh, whenever we put a need out there, you guys rise to the occasion. And I know that we're, we're all tapped pretty deep. Some, there's folks in this congregation who give 25 to 50% of their income away. Uh, and, and yet you keep stepping up. Uh, I love the fact that within a couple of hours, we had all those slots filled for Project Home. That was fantastic. And if you weren't able to find a spot, 
Yes, don't worry. We'll be doing this again and again and again and again. Uh, and so there'll be plenty of work to go around. So uh, stay, stay tuned. But see, this is why we have things like Project Home or, or why we have worked to have at, at our site this job training center and, and this daycare center for uh, families, uh, lower-income families and families with kids with special needs. And we've got a ministry here uh, for people with, with mental disabilities. And we have this food shelf here. And, and w- there's going to be more ministries coming. We've got a vision for that north end that is just incredible. This one-stop shop service center for, for, for people on the street and a transitional housing and all of that. And we're going to keep on doing that and keep on asking you to step up and sacrifice and bleeding and feeling the pinch and pooling our resources because that is what the kingdom is about. That puts on display uh, the the beauty of our God. That is a magnificent cathedral. And so what is the church? Well, the the church is the people. The people who are collectively aspiring to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, and thereby manifest the kingdom of God. We also have, I'll just say this, I I think a prophetic role that we're to play here in this American context. And here again, we're passing on, we're receiving and passing on the tradition of the Anabaptist. Because I feel like we are called and we're seeing ourselves move into this this calling in the last couple of years as people around the globe are getting this vision of a Jesus-looking God and a Jesus-looking kingdom. And uh, many of them are are starting to come to us and want to have some kind of alliance with us. But we're seeing that we're called to, to really prophetically say out loud that the religion of Christendom is not the kingdom. Uh, we're, we're, we're carrying on that dissenting tradition. Here in America, this is really the last, the last stronghold of that religion of Christendom. It's the last, all over the globe, it, it's been dying. In all the places where Christendom once ruled, you now find a culture that's more hostile to the gospel than unreached, uh, unreached cultures, which shows you that the devil's strategy worked. And, uh, but here in America, you still have this thinking that, that the way to further the kingdom is by conquering and by taking over and by crushing the opposition or at least controlling the opposition and, and you know, you know, uh, fight for God and country and take America back for God and all that. That's Christendom thinking. And God has called us to be living and saying out loud the message that that is not the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't come over people. It comes under people. And it doesn't make others bleed. It rather bleeds for others. We're not to be the people group that fights for our rights to get all our conveniences or whatever. No, no, we're, we're, we're to be the people that are willing to sacrifice our rights in service to others. And, and so there's a prophetic role that we have as well. And in doing that, we're passing on the Anabaptist tradition. Then the purpose of the church. I got five minutes, don't I? Okay, five minutes. Give me five minutes. Here, here's the major difference. The purpose of the church. In the religion of Christendom, they thought the purpose of the church, because they fused the church and the state together... They thought the purpose of the church was basically, for the masses at least, to just make good citizens. Right? Because the church and the society are one and the same. So it's, it's to make good citizens. And they had a special group of people, the clerics, the priests, the nuns, the monks. They were the holy people and they were the ones who were supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and strive to be like Jesus and, and, and live simply and, and, and say no to the ambitions of the world and um, uh, to just aspire to Christ-likeness and commit to prayer and all of that. And these folks uh, understood that they could not do it alone, so they formed communities. And often, more often than not, they retreated from the world and, and, and formed monasteries. Like the, the monastery, uh, the, the Melk Monastery in France. A city set on a hill. And um, 
These people, I mean, there's beautiful accounts of, of real kingdom people in these monastic communities. The Benedictines, the Franciscans, the Jesuits. And they were always trying to reform the church and all this other kind of stuff. So that, that, that's with the clerics. But in the religion of Christendom, they assume that that bar is way too high for the masses. Um, the masses, you just try to, to make into good citizens. The Anabaptists come along and they say, No. Uh, our, the ch- job of the church is not to make good citizens of the kingdom of the world. The job of the church is to make citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that applies to everybody. That applies to everybody. And so what the religion of Christendom said was true of the monastic community, the Anabaptists said, that's true of all of us. We're all called to live in a monastic community. We're all called to help one another, uh, aspire towards Christ-likeness. We're all called to seek first the kingdom of God. We're all called to say no to the ambitions of this world and, and, and the riches of the world. We're all called to live in simplicity, to, ser- to free up resources, to serve the poor. We're all called to be dedicated to, to prayer. In fact, they got rid of the laity-clergy uh, 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 distinction. You know, this idea that there's a reverend up here who's closer to God than everybody else, and their prayers count more than anybody else, and blah, blah, blah. The Anabaptist said, no, it may be advantageous to the church to free up somebody to do their gift full time in service to the church. But that doesn't make them closer to God than anybody else. It doesn't make them a reverend. We are all called to be ministers, they saw. We're all called to be uh, missionaries. We're all called to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We're all called to serve. We're all called to be the temple. We all have a role to play. We all have gifts to bring, all of us. And so it's not just for the clergy. No, no, we're all called towards this. In fact, they took it so far that they even had, we're talking the early 16th century, they had women preachers. (laughs) Yes, women preachers. And, and that was shocking at the time. And unfortunately, it's still all too rare. Because the religion of Christendom, this macho, we're going to conquer the world religion, it's always had way more testosterone than it can use. It's been a male-dominated religion. And so they had, about, they had women preachers. Some of the most beautiful stories are, are these heroes, these heroic women. Uh, uh, Margaret Hottinger, for example. She's this gal. Uh, she went to a, attended an a Anabaptist Bible study right at, soon after the birthday of the Anabaptist movement in 1525. She's convinced that this is the true gospel. She signs up. She's baptized. Next day, she's out on the street preaching. About a month later, she gets arrested, thrown into prison, fed uh, bread and water, and sleeps on straw for a year in isolation. After a year, the folks figure she must have learned her lesson, tell her to stop preaching. They let her loose. Next day, she's out preaching again. And she goes up to St. Gall, and for three years, she evaded authorities. She got, had the gift of prophecy. She prophesied over people. She preached the gospel. She was a, uh, just a hero of the faith in furthering the Anabaptist movement, which I think is the kingdom of God. Uh, finally, the authorities catch up to her, and now they don't bother to incarcerate her. Uh, they take her out on a boat, tie her hands and feet, throw her over, and she drowns which was the typical way you killed Anabaptists uh, in the, the Netherlands. But see, here's, this, this is our tribe, folks, because this is what we believe. We've always preached this. We are all the church. We are all the, 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 the embodied the kingdom. We've all got gifts to bring. And it does not matter what your gender is. I don't care what your socioeconomic status is. I don't care what your educational level is. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I don't care nothing about nothing about nothing. If you're in Christ, that's all that matters. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. So you're free. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Nadia, Zippo, don't matter. What matters is that you're gifted in that area and you're called, and we've all got gifts to bring to the kingdom, and the kingdom needs all of those gifts. And so I want to say, I'll end with this. I encourage you women, if, if, if God has put it on your heart to go into leadership and, and to preach the gospel, be a senior pastor, I don't care. 
You know, if you go to Afghanistan, you're going to have a hard time. But we're not in Afghanistan. We're here. And I'm saying, here, you go for it. And there are some people out there, the, the guardians of the religion of Christendom, who will get very mad at this. Some threatened males who will, who will ah, that's probably not fair. I, I, well, I think they are threatened, but I shouldn't say that out loud. But uh, uh, no, you know, they, they think that this is how they interpret the Bible. But I, I, I am so, so tired of getting letters and sometimes phone calls from women who got motivated to move into ministry uh, from, from this, this ministry. And so they pursue it and they go to college or, or seminary and they get beat up from these guys who tell them that they're of the devil because they're going to uh, trying to be preachers or, God forbid, have authority over a man. Well, you know what, women? Just ignore them and you pursue it. You go for it. Just, you're going to have to be tough. Get thick skin, but um, go for it. Go for it. Uh, God has called you. Do not let anyone dissuade you or discourage you or trample you down. No. All right, all right, all right. Praise God. Let's take some questions. I remember they did. All right. Okay, while both men and women have unsurpassable worth, glad you you see that. What do you think about the Bible passages that indicate different roles for them? Are those not really real, or are they culturally construed? I think they're culturally construed, Uh, honestly. um, You know, if you look at the... Well, here's what you find. Even in the New Testament, you find um, uh, the kingdom... The mustard seed gets planted, and it grows, and as it grows, it pushes back on all parts of the culture that are not kingdom, uh, and that always takes time, and so what you find even in the New Testament is uh, a church that is enculturated and beginning to push back on some of the things in the culture, um, and uh, so what Paul does in first century culture, you've got, it's, it's totally patriarchal um, and misogynist, and so men have all the power. So what Paul does, it's brilliant in, in Ephesians 5, is he takes that, uh, those different roles and he just redefines them. Okay, people are thinking in terms of man being the head and the woman uh, being the, the follower. Uh, and so he, he says, okay, you, you want to work with that system? Okay. But here's what it looks like to take the truth that in Christ there's neither male nor female and apply it to the, those cultural roles. Uh, man, you're the head? Wonderful. You have all the power? Wonderful. Here's what you do with it. You give it away. Uh, you, you, you be towards your wife like Christ was to the church. The omnipotent God had all the power, called all the shots. That's where men were at in the first century. And what did he do? He laid down his life for his bride while she was yet unworthy to make her uh, a bride that was without spot or wrinkle. So also, husbands, you want to be the head of the family? Wonderful. Here's what you do. That just means you, take the, you initiate the responsibility to lay down your life for your wife when she least deserves it. <laughs> Uh, when she is at her worst, that's when you lay down your life because Christ did it to you while you were yet an enemy. So even if your wife is being an enemy to you, uh, your job is to lay down your, your life. So they, they, there's a radical subversion of the social categories. Um, really, the status of women in the New Testament is the same as a slave. Uh, and that's why I think it's, it's a little bit contradictory to say that the slavery should be gone, but women should still have the secondary role. I, you know, uh, you read First uh, Peter, as he's talking to slaves, he uses, he says, slaves, submit to your masters. Five verses later, in chapter 3, he says, wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. Uh, and then he, he raises up Sarah, who, uh, as, as the hero here, and says, even as Sarah called her husband Abraham, Lord, L-O-R-D. So if you're going to preach uh, these, that these roles are timeless, 
Well, then, A, I don't know why you're not still preaching that slavery should be around. And B, you should be telling women they should call their husbands Lord. Good luck with that one. The alternative is to say this is all culturally relative. This is what the culture was at. But that's not God's ideal. No, not at all. You look at, you go back before the fall and then look at what you find in Christ. And the ideal is for human beings to be humans. God was to be our Lord, no one else. Jesus says, you know, those pagans, they lord over one another in various ways, whether it's on gender basis or ethnic basis, Romans over the Jews, men over women. They're always lording over one another, Jesus says. But, but he says, among you it shall not be so. Categorically, he says, it should not be so. The last shall be first. It's like the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve so also. Here, everything's going to be upside down. And that applies to everything. In fact, if we just were Christian to one another, it would subvert all those social categories. Paul says this in, 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 in Philippians 2. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was uh, by nature God, didn't cling to his equality with God, but he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, even to the point of death. He says, Let that mind be in you towards everything. So if a husband and wife are just Christian towards one another, they're not going to be trying to do this, you know, who, who's boss? They'll be doing this. Uh, you know, how do we serve one another? It was because of the fall in Genesis 3 that the Lord says, oh, the man's, woman's desire is going to be towards the man, which means to manipulate, but the man's going to lord over, over, over uh, uh, the woman. And, and people take that as a prescription for marriage, like that's what God wants. But that's not what God wants. That's what God gets because of the fall. What God wants is what he had before the fall. And, and th- th- that's where the two are, are, are together, right? There's... Uh, the woman's a helpmate, and that doesn't mean that she's a servant, because the same word is used of God. God's our helpmate. It's not a, it's a subsidiary role. It's a partnership working together. Okay, now I'm preaching again. Uh, all right. So anyways, I, 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 think they're all, I think that they're all culturally relative. But if you don't agree with that, that's fine. I'm cool. Just be Christian. All right? Just be Christian towards one another, and we'll come to the same thing, because <laughs> the social stuff loses all of its significance once you're Christ, uh, Christ-like to one another. I'm uncomfortable with how much the Anabaptists suffered. <laughs> well... <laughs> You should see how they feel. Uh, I'm sorry, you're uncomfortable. Uh, I'm not sure I can do that. Should I feel bad about that? Am I still a part of the church? Well, um, no, don't feel bad about it. I don't want to. But look, you're just being honest. You're not sure you can do that. That that shows great heroism. Uh, I got that. And it's easy to sit there and say, oh, I would do that. I'd give my life for Christ. Uh, But... um, that's another thing to be in the reality of that. It's amazing to me how many people will say, oh, I die for Christ, but they can't live for him. <laughs> I, uh, uh, oh, I'd gladly suffer, but they, they can't give up anything that makes them suffer. Um, no, look, that's, that's a heroic thing. The important thing is this. It's not to compare yourself or measure yourself uh, with somebody else. Um, we're all, we always live in the now. We're, the gospel is always in the immediate present. And so what matters is that we are here and now in the real world, aspiring to be as Christ-like as we can. Be heroic in how you, how you respond to your little enemies now. And maybe in 20 years, you'd be the kind of person that would respond like that. Um, I, you know, I don't, where you're at now is important. What, what matters is the direction you're heading. And, and so rather than, than looking at these you know, situations where people are persecuted, I mean, we can thank God that we're in a country that's not where we aren't persecuted. Not yet. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, but um, uh, let, let's, let, let's, on a daily basis, commit to living as intensely Christ-like as we can uh, towards the people that we come in contact with, uh, people who have grudges on us, people who slander us. Um, let, let's, be, let's cultivate a servant Christ-like spirit here and now, a sacrificial spirit here and now, 
increasingly sharing our resources here and now. All those things are in little ways dying to yourself. And if we die to ourselves in all the little ways that God calls us to every day, because every day we'll find opportunities to do this if we're looking for them, uh, then maybe if ever we're placed in a situation where the Anabaptists found themselves, where you have to actually die in your physical life, uh, that we'd be willing to do it. If we don't cultivate that character, however, in the little ways, well, then it's very certain that we wouldn't respond the way they responded uh, when their life was at stake. So what matters is don't compare and contrast yourself. Just commit to living today as fully uh, in a Christ-like way as you can, uh, cultivating that mindset, that attitude, that humility. That, to live like that, folks, to live like that um, is going to set you completely at odds with the religion of Christendom where you assume that you win by crushing the opposition. This is why the Anabaptists saw that we're dealing with really two different religions. Uh, we, yeah, we named Christ and all that, and they didn't want to decide who's in heaven, who's not. That wasn't their business. It's no one's business. But they were in, passionate about pointing out that the, the authentic kingdom always looks like Jesus carrying the cross, never looks like a crusader carrying the sword. Two very different things. Let's cultivate this, this, this attitude, this mindset, this heart, day in and day out. And in doing that, we will together be the cathedral of God, the St. Peter's, the Sistine Chapel, and put on display his beauty to a world that desperately, desperately needs to see it. I close in prayer, and as I do, I like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever, please come up here and share it with these folks. Uh, this, is how, this is the role they play in the church. This is how they want to serve. Uh, take advantage of that. Don't carry that burden out uh, on your own shoulders uh, alone this morning. Abba, Father, I just pray blessing on everyone in this auditorium and those who are listening to the podcast and television. And I pray, God, Holy Spirit, you seal this message on our hearts and engrave it deeply in our soul of passion to be the cathedral of God that puts on display the beauty of uh, uh, enemy-loving, nonviolent love, that humble servant love, that Christ-like love, that non-judgmental love, God. Burn it in our hearts. Uh, as we go out into this world, God, and I, I just pray, Lord, that you use us to draw others into this magnificent, beautiful, eternal kingdom that Jesus died and was raised to bring into this world. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's temple people said, God bless you guys. Go out and shine on the world. Greetings, beloved kingdom people. Welcome to the addendum for uh, my message this last week on the Anabaptist and church. Uh, there's a few questions that we didn't have time to get to that I'd like to address God say, I really appreciate the quality of the questions uh, that we get on these Q and A's. Uh, we got some, we got some smart people at Woodland Hills Church. I like it a lot. So uh, here's one question: The person says, "I understand uh, the nonviolent Jesus in the Gospels, but what about Jesus, the quote warrior triumphant unquote in Revelation, the book of Revelation? How does that violent picture of Jesus influence our picture of nonviolence?" Good question. Uh, there needs to be a book on There's a lot of scholarly uh, stuff that addresses this, but there's not a popular level book that addresses this issue. I've got a chapter on this in this forthcoming book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, uh, but it, it also is kind of academic. I'm hoping to turn it into more of a popular piece uh, sometime in the future. But be that as it may, here's what I can say about it now. If you take the book of Revelation literally, then you've got a Jesus uh, who he shows up and he is utterly in contradiction to everything he taught and modeled in the Gospels. Uh, you read Revelation 19, for example, and uh, if you take it literally, you've got a Jesus who slaughters, massacres thousands and thousands of people uh, just ruthlessly. Um, and so 
you got it. It raises a character question. I mean, Jesus, uh, you tell us uh, about uh, how we're supposed to turn the other cheek and love our enemies and bless those who persecute us, and you model it, you know, and all of that. And all of a sudden, you show up, and you know, it's it's like uh, you don't practice what you preach. What, what, what goes on here? Here's the thing: as a lot of the scholarly literature is showing, uh, Richard Balcom and others. Um, the, the book of Revelation, it, it's the most ingenious thing. If you read it very carefully, these scholars argue, um, what you find John doing is he's appropriating violent images from the Old Testament and from uh, apocalyptic literature of his day. And what he does is he, he masterfully subverts it. He turns it on his head, so it means the exact opposite of what it meant in its, in, in its original context. Uh, it is, as uh, R- Richard Balcom says, uh, a violently anti-violent, War scroll. It's patterned on the war scroll uh, in Qumran, uh, and and yet it's a, a war scroll that is violently anti-violent. So, for example, uh, he takes the violent image of a lion, a roaring lion, rips its its uh, enemies to shreds. But the lion he identifies in chapter five is, is the lamb. The lion is the lamb, and then throughout the book of Revelation, from then on, it's always the li- the lamb uh, who is doing the warfare. So he subverts it. Um, you have Jesus. He's got a sword. Yeah, he wields a sword, and he massacres all sorts of people. But it's a sword that comes out of his mouth, and it's, it's called the sword of truth. And it's John's way of saying that it's the truth that ends up uh, slaying all lies and all evil. Uh, but it's not a physical kind of a violence. Um, it, it's just by speaking the truth. And Jesus in Revelation 19, he, he, we find this uh, typical image of a, 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 a warrior soaked in blood. And you find this in the Old Testament. You find it in other literature where the, the, it's a sign of this valiant, brave warrior comes back and, and the blood of his enemies just soak him. He's just drenched in blood. What's interesting is in the book of Revelation, in that chapter, uh, Jesus is soaked in blood before he even goes into battle. <laughs> you don't really even have a battle scene there. You've got, uh, no battle actually takes place. But Jesus is all bloody before he goes into battle. And what these scholars argue is that it's because this, this lion, who is also a lamb, this warrior, who is also a lover, he fights um, by laying down his life. It's his own blood. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't spill the blood of his enemies. He spills his own blood. Uh, and it's the truth of that way of living uh, and the love that's manifested in that way of living that ends up defeating evil. Um, so there's a war, but it's an anti-violent war. Um, you've got this with his followers as well, uh, the, the followers of the Lamb. says they follow him wherever he goes. And they're also warriors, and they're also victorious. Uh, but how are they victorious? Well, they also have a sword that comes out of their mouth. And uh, it, it says that they are victorious because uh, they fight with the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. The word of their testimony uh, and uh, bearing witness to Christ and Christ's presence in their life and by the blood of the Lamb. And uh, Richard Balcom uh, argues that that's not uh, that uh, talking about the substitutionary death of Christ for us. It's rather talking about uh, their willingness to be martyred the way the Lamb was martyred. And so John takes these very violent apocalyptic images and images from the Old Testament, turns it on its head, and subverts the meaning of it. It's a brilliant, brilliant work. Uh, powerful, uh, masterful, but it's not to be taken literally. Uh, it, just the fact that it's an apocalyptic genre should be enough to, tell, uh, to teach us that uh, it shouldn't be taken literally. In fact, if you take that book literally, you come up with a number of just absolutely uh, unintelligible, nonsensical things, uh, like the stars fall from the sky, like figs on the ground. Really? Literally? 
And uh, after they fall on the ground, they're, they're back up there two chapters later. In fact, they fall from the sky three times in the book of Revelation. Uh, if you're taking this literally, you got problems. Okay, so that, that addresses the uh, first question. Here's another question. According to the scripture this morning, whoever destroys the temple, this is a quote, whoever destroys the temple, God will destroy that person. The person says, you didn't say anything about this part of the passage. That's true, because that wasn't the point of my message. What does this mean? It seems quite violent compared to the Anabaptist view. Good, good question. Um, yes, God destroys, and you find that uh, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But the all-important question is, uh, how does God destroy? What, what is meant by that phrase? Uh, I would argue that in, in, in all of our thinking, it's uh, important to start with the cross. The cross is the thematic center of everything Jesus was about, and Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. And um, so in this book that I have uh, coming in the future called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I spent a chapter laying out uh, as a methodological principle that the cross should be the center of everything. Keep our eyes fixed on the cross. And, and ask the question, what does the cross show us about the way God destroys or the way God judges uh, people? Um, this is the definitive revelation of God and therefore the definitive revelation of how God brings about judgment. Now, in Isaiah 53, it says that the father uh, afflicted his, his suffering servant or bruised his suffering servant. But if you read the Gospels, uh, you'll see that God doesn't lift a finger towards Jesus. Uh, all the violence carried out towards Jesus is done by wicked humans at the hands of wicked humans who are themselves being orchestrated by uh, fallen uh, cosmic powers, Satan and other uh, cosmic powers. They're, they are the ones who carry out the violence. Um, the, and yet it says the father afflicts him. So what's going on here? Well, what the father does is uh, he, he, he brings judgment, the judgment for all sin, the death consequences for all sin are experienced by Jesus because the Father turns him over. You find this phrase over and over again in the New Testament. Uh, he's delivered over, offered up to uh, wicked humans and these violent principalities and powers. Um, and so what Calvary teaches us is that the way God brings about judgment is by withdrawing, withdrawing his protective hand. That's why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's suffering the judgment of God. Forsakenness is, is, is the judgment of God. All sin is at his heart pushing God away. And God in his mercy tries to uh, not be pushed away, works to stay in our life, uh, to prevent us from suffering the death consequences of sin. Sin is, it always results in death because God's the source of all life, and to push God away is to, is to choose death. It says in Proverbs, whoever hates me loves death. Uh, and God tries to protect us from that, but there comes a time when, when God sometimes sees that he's got no choice but to give us our wish and allow himself to be pushed away. And so he withdraws, uh, or as the Bible often says, he hides his face. Uh, and then uh, judgment comes, violence ensues. Then destruction comes, and so God does destroy, but not in the sense that he ever acts violently, but in the sense that he allows evil to run its course. And again, in this book that I have coming out, uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I have two chapters filled with example after example after example in Scripture, where on the one hand, it's, it depicts God as, as acting violently, says that God will slay Jerusalem, for example. But if you read the context, it's, uh, it's very clear that the only ones who do the slaying are other human beings, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Assyria. Um, they, they end up bringing the judgment uh, on Israel, uh, and God doesn't lift a finger. What God does, and you find this all over the place, if you read the narratives carefully, he withdraws. He withdraws. He allows himself to be pushed away. In fact, this is the kind of discipline that, that Jesus tells, the, and that Paul tells the church to practice. 
Uh, it is the godly way about bringing uh, uh, a judgment on, a, on someone because it mirrors what God does. Uh, when, uh, when a person will not repent, you turn them over, you turn them out, uh, Matthew 18. Or Paul says of this person in 1 Corinthians 5, who was uh, sleeping with his mother-in-law, ooh, and um, uh, the Corinthians were condoning it. And so Paul says, no, you, you can't condone that. You have to, uh, if this brother will not repent, you turn him out. And he says, turn him over to Satan. Because the idea here is that this world is oppressed by this destructive power named Satan, who's always he's the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Uh, in this fallen world, violence ensues as naturally from sin as, as gravity pulls a ball to the ground. Uh, to, for a ball to go to the ground, you, have to, you don't have to throw it down. You just have to let it go. And if God ever lets us go, he's the one who sustains all things uh, by his hand, it says in, in Hebrews 1, uh, 3. But if he ever lets go, boom, uh, this oppressive uh, principality and power and the whole kingdom of darkness comes and brings about destruction. Um, God doesn't act violently, doesn't need to, not in a world that's permeated by violent forces like this. And so Paul says, turn him over for, for the destruction of his flesh. Uh, that's, that's a judgment. Uh, but it's not one that involves us as God's people acting violently or God acting violently. Uh, it involves uh, wicked forces bringing about their, their destructive consequences. The only other thing I'll say about that is that um, Paul says, turn him over for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul or his spirit might be saved. And so even though Paul is here turning, uh, the, telling them to turn over this person for judgment, his motive ultimately is salvation. Um, and I would argue that, that, in fact, God's judgments always are done for a redemptive purpose. Uh, God's hoping that people will learn and turn and um, uh, repent of their wicked ways and find life in him. Uh, okay, enough said about that. One, one other final question I'll address is uh, this. A person says, if, according to the New Testament, everybody is a pastor or a priest, then why do we pay pastors or, or priests? Hmm, good one. In other words, why am I employed? Okay. Uh, look, at uh, one thing is I, I wouldn't say that everybody's a pastor. Um, a, a pastor is a special position. It requires a special gift and a special calling. It's to be a shepherd over people, and not everyone's called to do that. But everyone is, I said in the message, everyone is called to be a minister. Uh, we're, we are all called to be priests to the world, and um, we all have got a role to play in, in, in the kingdom, and it's all equal. Um, but to say that, 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 that uh, we're all called to be ministers and we all have a role to play and it's all equal is not to say that it's not sometimes, sometimes advantageous for the church to set aside somebody full-time to do their gift. And the Anabaptists, at least most of them, uh, saw that it is expedient for the church uh, to sometimes free up a person to do their gift full-time in leading or in teaching or whatever the case may be. Uh, that doesn't make them closer to God. It doesn't make them more spiritual. It doesn't mean that their prayers count more than anybody else. Uh, no, it just means that the church needs their gift to be done more. And so it frees them from their tent-making jobs so that they can pour themselves uh, with a singular focus into uh, doing the work that God calls them to do. Um, and so the Anabaptists wouldn't call, you know, I can't say this definitively, I, I don't know if none of them would, but uh, they've generally been averse to having special titles like Reverend. Reverend, I hate that title, Reverend. Reverend Boyd, and I get it, you know, people 
Oh, the world will call you that, Reverend Boyd. But it's like, am I, am I reverberating or something? Do I? Yeah, I feel like I'm supposed to be radioactive or something. I, revere, revere me! I am the Reverend. Now, uh, you know, Jesus spoke against uh, putting special labels on people uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, calling someone Reverend or or Holy Father in a holy kind of sense, putting somebody closer to God than others. No, we all have direct access to God. We're all children of God. We're all called by God to be ministers. Uh, your prayers count as much as. Billy Graham or anybody else. So know that. Walk in that knowledge and be used of God to strengthen the church, to edify the church, to carry out the work of the kingdom in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.